Hi, I'm Brad Constantine, and this is a Come Follow Me podcast of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official podcast of the church, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. This year's study is the Book of Mormon. Each week, a new summary podcast of that week's Book of Mormon chapters will be released. But if you want a more detailed analysis of each individual chapter, those will also be available to listen to. I hope this Come Follow Me resource will be helpful to you. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be notified each week of a new episode. I hope you like this uh, format. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be for lesson number 48. It will cover Moroni's chapters 7 through 9 and also be for the time period of December the 7th through the 13th. So we're getting to the end here of um, the Book of Mormon. We have these few chapters left of the Book of Moroni. Now these three chapters that we're going to cover are, um, a lot of it is uh, just uh, letters letters that Mormon wrote to his son Moroni to explain a couple things about church doctrine, about uh, some of the things that he needed to, to know. Uh, it's interesting that this is probably in result of either letters or um, a request that, that Moroni had of his father to clarify some points of doctrine. So um, some of that is in here. And then uh, it looks like um, this chapter 7 is kind of like a talk that Mormon gave, uh, that of, of which the transcript we have, and so that's what this is mostly about. So let's go ahead and get into this one. In the first few verses here, in verse 5, he says, uh, I remember... The word of God which saith, By their works ye shall know them, for if their works be good, then they are good also. For behold, God hath said, A man being evil cannot do that which is good, for if he offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. <clears throat> this brings up the question of, uh, should I be doing things if I don't want to? Should I do things out of duty? Uh, what, should, you know, what should be the case here? Elder Oaks said, have you ever found yourself doing something you thought was right, but doing it because you had to? Did you ever keep a commandment of God with an attitude of resentment or self-righteousness, or even because you expected some immediate personal benefit? I suppose most of us have had this experience. Do you remember your feelings on such occasions? Do you think such feelings will be ignored by a Father in Heaven who gave us the power, the willpower we call agency? Don't such feelings tell us something about the desires of our hearts? Under the law of God, we are accountable for our feelings and desires, as well as our acts, evil thoughts and desires will be punished. Acts that seem to be good bring blessings only when they are done with real and righteous intent. Um, <clears throat> and so then he talks about, uh, Mormon is talking also, he says, Likewise, it is counted evil unto a man if he should pray, and not with real intent of heart. Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a good gift. So it seems like there's several uh, reasons why we might do things. Uh, let me read through another comment here or two from Elder Oaks. He says, People serve one another for different reasons, and some reasons are better than others. Perhaps none of us serves in every capacity all the time for only a single reason. Since we are imperfect beings, most of us probably serve for a combination of reasons, and the combinations may be different from time to time as we grow spiritually. But we should all strive to serve for the reasons that are highest and best. Some some may serve for hope of eternity. Of earthly reward. Others might serve in order to obtain worldly honors, prominence, or power. Another reason for service, probably more worthy than the first, but still in the category of service in, in search of earthly reward, is that motivated by a personal desire to obtain good companionship. These first two reasons for service are selfish and self-centered and unworthy of saints. Reasons aimed at earthly rewards are distinctly lesser in character and, and reward than the other reasons I will discuss. Some may serve out of fear of punishment. Service out of fear of punishment is a lesser motive at best. 
Other, other persons may serve out of a sense of duty or out of loyalty to friends or family or traditions. Those who serve out of a sense of duty or loyalty to various wholesome causes are the good and honorable men and women of the earth. Service of the character I have just described is worthy of praise and will surely qualify for blessings, especially if it is done will, willingly and joyfully. There are still higher reasons for service. One such higher reason for service is the hope of an eternal reward. This hope, the expectation of enjoying the fruits of our labors, is one of the most powerful sources of motivation. As a reason for service, it necessarily involves faith in God and in the fulfillment of his prophecies. The last motive I will discuss is, in my opinion, the highest reason of all. It is in its relationship to service. It is what the scriptures call a more excellent way. Charity is the pure love of Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches us that this virtue is the greatest of all. If our service is to be most efficacious, it must be accomplished for the love of God and the love of his children. This principle, that our service should be for the love of God and the love of fellow men, rather than for personal advantage or of any other lesser motive, is admittedly a high standard. Service with all of it, all our heart and mind is a high challenge for all of us. Such service must be free of selfish ambition. It must be motivated only by the pure love of Christ. And so uh, as we uh, ponder and think about uh, the service that we render others, are we doing it for ourselves? Are we doing it for them? Are we doing it for Heavenly Father? Uh, so that's those are some things worth thinking about. Verse, um, <clears throat> verse 12, all things that are... All things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good, and to love God, and to serve him, is inspired of God. And so, as we as we study that concept... Um, understanding that those things that are good come from God. And so we need to, to be doing that more frequently. Verse 16 is a scripture mastery verse. It says, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to, the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it, it is of God. And so we can know for sure that uh, the path that we're on is the path we're supposed to be on. Uh, Elder McConkie said, This enlightenment is administered to all men through the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Lord or light of truth or the light of Christ, all of which expressions are synonymous. The Spirit fills the immensity of space, is in all things, and is not to be confused with the personage of Spirit known as the Holy Ghost or Spirit of the Lord. The light of Christ is the Spirit of the Lord which leads men to accept the gospel and join the church so that they may receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> and then verse 17, But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and deny him, and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye do not judge wrongfully, for that, for with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Wherefore, I beseech of you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. And so that's our challenge, is to, to recognize good from evil, uh, to be diligent in that search of truth and light and knowledge, and to uh, not stray from that. So think about this as we relate to the, uh, the light of Christ. Joseph Fielding Smith said, We do not find this doctrine 
so clearly defined in the New Testament as in the Doctrine and Covenants in the Book of Mormon, but we, we discover this. The Lord has not left men when they are born into this world helpless, groping to find the light and truth, but every man that is born into the world is born with the right to receive the guidance and the instruction, the counsel of the Spirit of Christ, or light of truth, sometimes called the Spirit of the Lord in our writings. If a man who has never heard the gospel will hearken to the teachings and manifestations of the Spirit of Christ, or the light of truth, which come to him, often spoken of as conscience, every man has a conscience and knows more or less when he does wrong, and the Spirit guides him if he will hearken to its whisperings. It will lead him eventually to the fullness of the gospel. That is, he is guided by the light, and when the gospel comes, he will be ready to receive it. This is what the Lord tells us in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This spirit of truth, or light of Christ, also has other functions. We read this in the Revelation. This glory is that of the church of the firstborn, even of God the holiest of all, through Jesus Christ his Son, he that ascended up on high, and also he descended below all things, in that he comprehendeth all things, that he might be in all and through all things the light of truth, which truth shineth, this is the light of Christ, and also he is in the Son, and the light of the Son, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also he is in the moon, and is in the light of the moon, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also the light of the stars, and the power thereof by which they were made, and the earth also, and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand, and the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. Also in verse 19 it says, uh, To seek diligently in the light of Christ that ye may know good from evil, uh, so we can become the child, children of Christ uh, by our obedience to covenants and laws and ordinances. And then Mormon goes on to talk about uh, Jesus' ministry and the atonement. He mentions in verse 23, uh, God declared unto prophets by his own mouth that Christ should come. Uh, behold, there were divers ways that he did manifest things unto the children of men, which were good, and all things which are good cometh of Christ. Wherefore, by the ministering of angels, and by every word which proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God, men began to exercise faith in Christ. And after that he came, men also were saved by faith in his name. And by faith they become the sons of God, and as surely as Christ liveth, he spake these words unto our fathers saying, Whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, um, ye shall receive. <clears throat> uh, verse 28, For he hath answered the ends of the law, and he claimeth all those who have faith in him, and they who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. Wherefore he advocateth the cause of the children of men, and he dwelleth eternally in the heavens. And because he hath done this, have miracles ceased. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. For behold, they are subject unto him to minister according to the word of his command, showing themselves unto them of strong faith and of a firm mind in every form of godliness. And then down to 36, Or have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? Or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? Or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? It's interesting the Mormon is giving this talk while he's uh, working among all these wicked Nephites, and he, he still has hope, um, at least a faith in Christ. He says in 38, No man can be saved according to the words of Christ, save they shall have faith in his name. Uh, and he says, I, I, have, I judge better things of you. I know that you can do better. Uh, what is it that ye shall hope for in verse 41? Behold, I say unto you that he shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. 
Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope, for without faith there cannot be any hope. And so now he's talking about faith, hope, and charity a little bit here. Verse 45 is also a scripture mastery verse. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Elder McConkie then goes on to say about this verse, he says, Both Paul and Mormon expounded with great inspiration about faith, hope, and charity in many verses using the same words and phrases. If there is any difference between them, it is that Mormon expounds the doctrines more perfectly and persuasively than does Paul. It does not take much insight to know that Paul and, and Mormon both had before them the writings of some Old Testament prophet on the same subjects. I think that's interesting that they're quoted. They, they may be quoting from another prophet and and uh, using it here. And then in verse 46, he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye, ha ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all the gifts, or all the thing. Let me say that again. Which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Charity gives to those who don't deserve and expects nothing in return. It is the love God has for us and the love we have for little children, of whom we expect nothing but for whom we would give everything. That was by Hugh Nibley. Bruce R. McConkie said, Above all the attributes of godliness and perfection, charity is the one most devoutly to be desired. Charity is more than love, far more. It is everlasting love, perfect love, the pure love of Christ which endureth forever. It is love so centered in righteousness that the possessor has no aim or desire except for the eternal welfare of his own soul and for the souls of those around him. All right, let's move on to chapter 8. <clears throat> might ask the question, why is this chapter in the Book of Mormon? Mormon knew that his time was soon to end. Was soon to end. He looked back over the materials he had to see what may have been missing from the plates. So the subject of infant baptism he knew would be necessary for our day. But more importantly, this chapter is about the fall and the atonement. So again, this is an epistle from Mormon to his son Moroni because of a question that came up. And uh, so he's going to be asking about this. Um, he says, I rejoice exceedingly that your love, that your Lord Jesus Christ hath been mindful of you. Uh, but then he goes down into verse uh, 8. He says, listen to the words of Christ, your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Behold, I came into the world to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's covering this. Uh, and then he says that the whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. So um, little children, we know, are not subject to, uh, to um, repentance because they can't. Little children are subject to the pull and effects of the fall, just as everyone else is. But they are not, uh, however, held accountable for their acts. In summary, little children are saved without any preconditions, without faith, repentance, or baptism. Their innocence is decreed and declared by and through the tender mercies of an all-loving Lord. The, they are innocent through the atonement, not because there is no sin in their nature. Uh, that was by Robert Millet. <clears throat> And then in verse 10, he says, Behold, I say unto you that this thing shall ye teach, repentance and baptism unto those who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Yea, teach parents that they must repent and be baptized and humble themselves as their little children, and they shall all be saved with their little children. And their little children need no repentance, neither baptism. And I might add that they, don't, they also don't need to be, uh, have their uh, endowment in the temple. Behold, baptism is unto repentance to the fulfilling the commandments unto the remission of sins. 
the little children are alive in Christ, even from the foundation of the world. If not so, God is a partial God and also a changeable God and a respecter of persons for how many little children have died without baptism. And then down in verse 19, he says, Little children cannot repent, wherefore it is, it is awful wickedness to deny the pure mercies of God unto them, for they are all alive in him because of his mercy. And he that saith that little children need baptism denieth the mercies of Christ, and setteth it not the atonement of him and the power of his redemption. For behold, that all little children are alive in Christ, and also all they that are without law. It appears that um, <clears throat> what Mormon is condemning and characterizing as damning belief is the rejection of the merciful workings of the atonement. After one understands the role of accountability, the effects of the fall of Adam and the necessity of the Savior's redemption. When one understands these doctrines and knows the nature of God, yet continues to hold a view of God as capricious and arbitrary, and continues to deny the unconditional aspects of the atonement of Jesus Christ in overcoming both spiritual and physical deaths that resulted from the fall, then one will experience a temporary hell until he can repent and acknowledge the saving power and mercy of Christ. Also, with regards to uh, those that might have mental deficiencies, it says, uh, The Lord has made it known by revelation that children born with retarded minds shall receive blessings just like little children who die in infancy. They are free from sin because their minds are not capable of a correct understanding of right and wrong. Mormon, when writing to his son Moroni on the subject of baptism, places deficient children in the same category with little children who are under the age of accountability. They do not require baptism, baptism for the atonement of Jesus Christ, takes care of them equally with little children who die before the age of accountability. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints considers all deficient children with retarded capacity to understand just the same as little children under the age of accountability. They are redeemed without baptism and will go to the celestial kingdom of God. There we believe to have their faculties or other deficiencies restored according to the Father's mercy and justice. And that was by Joseph Fielding Smith uh, who answered the question. There are some that have asked even, uh, do little children that die before they reach the age of accountability, are they ever going to be tested? Uh, do they get tested at the end of the world? Uh, do all little children who die before the age of accountability inherit the celestial kingdom? Will some have to will some have to be tested in order to achieve ultimate exaltation? Mormon stresses that all little children and all that are without the law are alive in Christ because of his mercy. It is clear from Mormon's words in modern prophetic commentary that all who die without accountability are incapable of sin and repentance and are redeemed and alive in Christ, meaning they inherit the celestial kingdom. Little children are innocent and pure in this existence and will be pure and innocent in the world to come and will come forth in the resurrection of the pure in heart at the appropriate time. At the time of the second coming of Christ, wickedness will be cleansed from the face of the earth. The great millennium will be ushered in with power and then Satan and his hosts will be bound by the righteousness of the people. During this glorious era of enlightenment, the earth shall be given to the righteous for an inheritance, but will not dwell with the devil uh, but but will not the devil be loosed at the end of the millennium, some may ask? Could not those who had left mortality without trial be tested during that little season? Certainly not. For these, little, for these children that have already come forth from the graves as resurrected and immortal beings, how could such persons whose salvation is already assured possibly be tested? To reason otherwise is to place God and all exalted beings in peril of apostasy. In the words of President Joseph Fielding Smith, Satan will be loosed to gather his forces 
after the millennium. The people who will be tempted will be people living on this earth, and they will have every opportunity to accept the gospel or reject it. Satan will have nothing to do whatever with little children or grown people who have received their resurrection and entered into the celestial kingdom. Satan cannot tempt little children in this life, nor in the spirit world, nor after the resurrection. Little children who die before reaching the age of accountability will not be tempted. And so their test is over once they've, uh, once they've passed away uh, as little children. They're, they're not going to be tested again later on, uh, as some people might think. And then Moroni chapter ten or chapter nine then uh, is Mormon continuing. Uh, this is another epistle, a second epistle that Mormon writes to his son Moroni, and in this one he's he's kind of recounting what's going on with the uh, what's what's happening with the with his people, the Nephites. Uh, but notice that even in spite of all of the difficulties and the wickedness of the Nephites, in verse six, Mormon says. And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. So it's, you know, in spite of the fact that we don't think that people may join the church or that they may accept the message of the gospel, we still have an obligation to help to try to teach them uh, in spite of that fact. So we need to be diligent. We need to endure to the end. We need to continue on in spite of, uh, in spite of the, the things that we, we may prejudge. Um, and then at the end of uh, the chapter, I'm not going to recount all the wickedness that uh, Mormon is, is talking about here about his people. Uh, it's pretty gruesome. Some of the things that were going on, I'm not going to cover that here. It is in my detailed um, Book of Mormon podcast of each chapter, though. So chapter 9 of Moroni does have all the description of what's going on. If you want to read the gory details, you can read it there or listen to it there. Verse 26, May the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. And that's a great uh, great way to end this chapter with this letter from his, from his father to Moroni. Uh, I bear testimony that these things are true. Uh, and say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Talk to you later. Bye.